So Hebrews 13, uh, one of our family rituals, before COVID messed everything up, I don't know how your rituals have changed on the other side of COVID, but before, uh, before kind of COVID messed everything up, one of our family rituals in the Levering household was to gather together and watch a show called American Ninja Warrior. Has anybody seen this before? You know what I'm talking about. I know very few will actually raise their hands to acknowledge it, but uh, if, if you haven't seen it, it's basically an obstacle course. It's, an ob- it's a game show about an obstacle course, but it is the most ridiculous obstacle course you've ever seen in your life. Uh, you have to do just re- crazy things like uh, holding onto a log while it's spinning down a track and not getting thrown off of it, or, or jumping on a trampoline and planting yourself between two walls and then shimmying across like Spider-Man or something. And of course, the infamous warped wall. It's this big 18-foot wall you have to run up and grab the top of and pull yourself over. Uh, The closest thing I've ever come to experiencing something like that is the little ninja obstacle course at Sky Zone in town. So, in fact, I'm pretty sure Keith and I did a little competition that one time. Uh, In in fact, I've also, I'm sure you won. I am sure you, I've actually, I've done that with Pastor Josh one time as well, which is as I think about it, it's not like we go to Sky Zone after work or anything like that, but, uh, but that's, that's the closest I've ever got, and I am confident. I pulled muscles I did not even know existed when I was attempting that thing. Uh, but it's, it's a fun thing to watch, and there's some ridiculously talented athletes. Um, and, and in the show itself, the competition, if you make it to the finals... There are not just, there's not just one obstacle course, there are four courses or four stages, they call it, that you have to compete. Each one's got different obstacles. And then the last one, there's just one obstacle. It's a 75-foot rope that you have to climb in less than 30 seconds. And if you can do all of the things and, and do it faster than anybody else all season, you win like a million dollars. And, and, to, to illustrate how hard it is, there's only three people in 13 seasons and thousands of co- competitors who've actually completed it. So it's pretty fun. But part of what makes it so challenging and getting to the point where it maybe illustrates something in Hebrews, uh, part of what makes it so challenging is that a lot of the obstacles are unknown to the competitors before they get onto the course. The first time they will see or attempt some of these obstacles is during their run. That's really hard to do, right? How do you train to be ready for anything? But that's what they have to do. They have to be so diverse and and develop general skills in their training to prepare them to face a variety of obstacles uh, in the course of a season. And I do think there, there are a handful of metaphors we might make there for life in general, but also for Hebrews 13. Here we find at this conclusion to the letter, this series of seemingly random instructions, all kind of like, here's all the other stuff I wanted to say to you in the letter, but now I'm just cramming it in at the end. And it, and it feels kind of uh, overwhelming and, and maybe, um, you know, random or unspecific, but, but what we have here is a series of instructions about what to do in a variety of situations and unpredictable circumstances that we might find ourselves in as we pursue Christ, as we seek to finish the course well uh, and run our race with Christ. 
Except, of course, the big distinction, and we'll come back to this at the end, the big distinction is it's not our strength that we're running with, right? It's the strength that the Lord Himself supplies through the one who equips us by the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus, our better Savior. And so, this, as, as a, you know, Hebrews is a letter. Uh, it's a letter, and as many letters have at their conclusion, it's got a lot of the same kinds of things you'll find at the end of Paul's letters, for instance. There are personal greetings in there. There's a benediction. But the bulk are these instructions. And, and, and they're not just instructions about finishing well, which is what the whole book has been about, right? Holding fast to Christ to the end. They are that, but even more precise, they're instructions about acceptable worship. If you remember last week when we finished chapter 12, uh, the last couple of verses of chapter 12, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And Keith raised the question last week, so what's this acceptable worship? And he said, come back and find out in chapter 13, right? So that's what chapter 13 is doing. It's telling us, it's giving us this portrait of what is the acceptable worship that God uh, enjoys and receives through Jesus. And what's remarkable about what we find here is that it's not defined primarily by ritual. The worship that God accepts is not defined primarily by ritual. That's what worship looked like under the old covenant, right? You go back to the Levitical system and all of the sacrifices, it was a highly ritualized system. And, and honestly, that's what probably many of us are tempted to think about worship today as well. It's going through the religious motions. Like we come to church, we go through the religious motions, and then we, we go home or, or whatever. And, and of course, worship is not less than gathering as a church. You know, we, we've talked about that, especially back in chapter 10, right? It's not less than gathering as a church, and it's not even less than going through certain rhythms in our gathering. As Keith explained earlier, there's a certain flow shaped by the gospel that we try to walk through, and, and whether you're in a, a formal church or a casual church, every church has a liturgy or a service through which we walk. And so, worship is not less than gathering, but, but when he puts his emphasis on describing this acceptable worship, he focuses on the whole life lived in the whole variety of situations we might find ourselves in. What we see here is that new covenant worship is defined by a whole life lived according to God's will to the glory of Christ. It's not just what we do when we gather, but also when we go our ways, our separate ways, as we treasure Christ and follow Him day in and day out. Gathered worship, you maybe think of it this way. Gathered worship is like coming to the gym, right? If you're a competitive athlete, you got to go to the gym. you got to train. you got to get equipped. you got to spend that focused time. But if you are competing on Ninja Warrior or a marathon or whatever it is, the point of the gym is to prepare you for, what, for the course, Right? And so we come together, we worship, we make much of God, but it also equips us and prepares us for the life of worship that flows out of what we do here. And, and there are no, 
there's no set script for what we're going to encounter in life, right? We have to be prepared for a whole variety of situations and circumstances, unpredictable uh, situations in life. And, and so that's what he's preparing us for in chapter 13. And we can summarize these diverse instructions uh, under four categories or four stages, if you will, uh, each with its own set of obstacles uh, that we're likely to face and that we must learn how to overcome. And so stage one, we could call that fa- uh, familial love. Stage one is familial love. Stage two, following leaders. Stage three is fruitful lips and loving fellowship. And stage four, the one obstacle that sums it all up is a faithful life. And we're going to walk through each of these together. So stage one is familial love. Familial love, family love. I, you know, you see this in all sorts of, uh, of athletic scenarios or competitive scenarios. You see it on the, on the Ninja Warrior show, how the, the competitors, even though they're competing against each other, they're really a family. Like they, they like each other. They cheer each other on. They cry when each other falls and so on and so forth. Well, the church too is a family, but a family with a greater and eternal bond that comes from Jesus Christ. We have been purchased and sealed by His blood. This is a family that will last forever, and we are called to run our course not as just individual competitors, but as a family in Christ. And that's the overarching theme of the first stage in this instruction given in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let it abide. Let your family affection endure as you seek Christ. And what that looks like is spelled out with four obstacles. Hospitality, compassion, marriage, and money. There are four obstacles here that will test our endurance in several ways, requiring us to overcome selfishness, and indifference, and self-protection, and self-preservation if we're going to abide and continue in family love. So the first obstacle is hospitality, which tests our, uh, our ability to roll with the unforeseen needs of others and the extent to which we are willing to open our hand and lay down our lives to show kindness to others. So verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Let's get to the weird part of the verse first. Uh, Entertaining angels, right? That's not exactly uh, a scenario I picture in my brain as I'm preparing to go out through my day. What if I might entertain a heavenly messenger today? That's not something we think about, right? Uh, But remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 18, three travelers who visit him, whom Abraham hosted, and they turned out to be angels, messengers of God. It's a good reminder that this world is much bigger than what we can see with our eyes, right? There is an unseen realm from which God operates, and God's work is often much bigger than we can perceive or see, 
right? And, and so the point here, I think, is that what, what seems strange to us or, or people that are strange to us may not be strange to God. They might just be part of his heavenly family. And so abiding in brotherly love means showing hospitality to strangers, seeing the person. Like so often for a stranger, we see a potential problem or a roadblock into whatever it is I was planning to get done. Do we see the person? Do we take the time? Do we help meet the need? That's what hospitality does. It's denying ourselves and counting others more significant than ourselves, right? Allowing our busy lives to be inconvenienced with an opportunity to serve God and show His love. Welcoming people into our home, coming alongside them, showing the kindness that God has shown us. So hospitality, that's the first obstacle. The second is compassion. Compassion. Specifically, compassion toward those who are in prison for their faithfulness to Christ, which requires us to remember and show concern for for those who are sidelined by, because of their faith. And so verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. If you think, if, if you're, unless you're a, a defense attorney, there's really only one main reason anybody would visit somebody in prison because they're family, right? We don't just randomly do that. But, but if a family member ends up in prison, that's the one occasion in which most of us would actually go do that. Well, that's the context here. Family, right? Now, there is a general principle here that I think is helpful to remember, that just the kindness of remembering the incarcerated, generally speaking. You know, our country is in need of massive prison reform, and regardless of whether someone deserves to be there or not, they are still a person made in the image of God. Some of them are brothers and sisters who need their church family now more than they ever have. And so there's a good general word there. But the context here is talking more specifically about brothers or sisters imprisoned for their faith. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 34, that's kind of the picture. And, and for us, that's not something that we're typically worried about or having to navigate or deal with in America right now, right? We might be mistreated for our faith. Uh, none of us are really getting locked up, which is a wonderful grace of God. But it is happening around the world, in, in some contexts, uh, horribly so. And when that happens, do we realize that it's happening to our family? Those are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do, is, do we see that their trouble is our trouble? And of course, it's hard to, you know, to remember, it's hard to visit uh, people imprisoned for their faith around the country. We don't know them. We don't, what, what do I even do? Like you can read the blogs and the, and the statistics of, of the persecuted church, and it, and it feels like nameless statistics, right? And, and it is hard to know what to do, but at least at a bare minimum, we can remember that there are brothers and sisters around the Lord facing this. We can pray for them. We can do whatever is possible to advocate for them because they are family in Christ. They're family in Christ. 
So compassion is the second obstacle. The third obstacle in stage one is marriage. Marriage. And here the challenge involves overcoming indifference and resisting self-indulgence. Overcoming indifference and resisting self-indulgence. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So the family of God is called to honor marriage regardless of whether or not that describes your current situation in life. Let it be honored among all. It's an institution established by God for our good, for the good of society, and ultimately for His glory. And and honoring marriage, uh, that's a challenge right now in a culture that doesn't honor it at all. In fact, we've become quite indifferent to the whole idea. A lot of young people wonder why I would even do that when I can just live together and act like I'm married without even making any sort of commitment, right? We live in a world today that where nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce, 60% of children born are not born in a married, uh, only 60% of children born today are born in a married household. And of course, you know, we've, we've done everything in our culture to redefine what marriage even means in terms of uh, God's design for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. And so simply to honor an institution like this, I mean, what was assumed 50 years ago is a huge win today in our culture, just to honor the institution of marriage. Now, for those of us who have experienced the breakdown of that, who've been wounded by it, or maybe even contributed to it, it doesn't mean that we're beyond forgiveness or beyond hope or repair, right? The grace of God is powerful to redeem what is broken in this world, and that includes broken marriages, right? God's grace is is powerful to redeem the sins that we commit when we're the one messing things up and the sins committed against us when we find ourselves in a place we never thought we would be, to bring hope and healing where things are broken and to give us an even bigger family when our earthly family lets us down. But, but recognizing the sufficiency of His grace for those circumstances doesn't mean we lower our view or value on the importance of the marriage institution. We need to hold that up. It's part of God's design and following Jesus and worshiping Him daily means recognizing, doing our part to honor marriage in practice and in heart. And so part of that then is, of course, saying no to the self-indulgence that often leads to adultery or, or sexual immorality, the things that tend to break down that marriage institution. Again, it's a huge temptation in our world uh, that, that threatens to trip so many up, and, and yet it's something that so often we think that this can't happen to us, right? It can't happen to us. We see it happening elsewhere, but, but it's not we're, not, we're not at risk, And yet, even the most seasoned veterans can trip up on the most simple, easy obstacle, right? If you take it for granted, it can still trip you up. 
So we need to work intentionally to honor marriage as an institution, but also the marriages that God calls us to be part of, to invest in them. That's following, that's part of following Jesus. And so that's the, uh, the third obstacle. The fourth one in this first stage is the love of money. So we've, we've moved from hospitality to compassion to marriage, now to the love of money. And this obstacle is test to expose, it's designed to test or expose what our hearts are really depending on in life. What am I really clinging to? Verses 5 and 6, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, some of the upper body strength obstacles on the, uh, on the, the show they test not only your grip, but your ability to find something stable to hold on to. So they might have, you know, some things that are fixed, and then others, when you grab it, it rotates. And so you're like, you know, if you try and hold on to the wrong one, it's just going to spin you right off. When it comes to the love of money versus contentment, it's not about what we have. It's about what we're holding on to. It's about what we're holding on to. If we're holding on to our possessions, if that's what I'm trying to find my stability and my security in my stuff, right? Then that obstacle, that doorknob or bar or whatever, that is going to spin and rotate and, and, and shoot me right into the water, right? No matter how tight I grip it, it's not a stable handhold. But if we're holding on to God himself, if we truly believe that He will never leave us nor forsake us, then we can be content regardless of the circumstances, right? We can be content regardless of what this world throws at us. And therefore, because I'm content and stable there, I'm free to open my hand and share what I have with others, even if what I have is less than the next person. So, love of money, that, it, it opens me up to the freedom from the love of money frees me to love the family of God. And, and the challenges of familial love are real, right? These are daily tests that we must navigate and walk through by faith. But that's just stage one, right? It's kind of exhausting. You know, you get through the first stage and you're like, yeah, I did it. And now there's three more stages to the obstacle course, which again reminds us whose strength we truly need, right? So stage two is in verses seven and eight and 17 to 19, and it focuses on following leaders. This is the second category of instructions. Following leaders, both those who've gone before us and have finished their race and those who are currently over us in our church context. And there are three obstacles here. Remembering your leaders, obeying your leaders, and praying for your leaders, which all work together to test our teachability, our commitment, and our humility. And so, you know, the first one is remember your leaders. 
Uh, specifically, remember the leaders from your past, those who have gone before you and who have either completed their work or even finished their race with Jesus. Uh, because with any sport, you know, we, we always remember the greats, right? If you are you know, a fan or an athlete, whatever it is, you always remember the greats. You can talk about them, their influence. You can look back on their lives. The same is true for the church. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And, and the reason that, that most people think that verse 7 is talking about leaders from your past or those who finished versus your current leaders or the difference in the instruction. From verse 7, it's remember. Verse 17, it's obey. And so this one's looking backward. The other one will be looking at your current context. And, and so what is it that we remember about our leaders? Consider the outcome of their way of life. Look at how they lived, what they taught, and what God did through that. To let that be an inspiration and an encouragement to you. It's the same thing you do with, um, you know, with great athletes. You go back and you rewatch the old film, right? And you see how they did this and that, or you consider the sweeping scope of their career, the mistakes they made, how they rebounded, and so on. We can do that with the leaders that God has given us uh, in our lives, to learn from them, from their example, you know, for me, I mean, there, there's so many people that fit into that category, but one of the, one of the pastors I think about who has shaped me uh, is a man named Kent Hughes at College Church. He was uh, one of my pastors at College Church in Wheaton who retired back in 2008. Uh, we were part of the congregation then. I honestly did not know him well personally, but I watched him. And, and more than that, I watched the fruit of his ministry, both the investment he made in the congregation, but also the investment he made in training dozens upon dozens of preachers who were preaching around the world, and some of whom were deeply influential in my life. And, and so much of the way that I think about church and ministry and preaching was shaped by considering his ministry and the outcome of his life and the fruit that it bore for the gospel. Uh, many of us here rightly and probably think of, of Pastor Randy Shile, who preached the word of God faithfully from this pulpit, well, not this pulpit, it was a music standard, whatever it is he used, right? Uh, for 27 years, shepherding this congregation, investing in you and, and, and laying his life down. And you look and you consider the outcome of his life. You remember that the ways that he led, the ways that he taught, the ways that he loved, the ways that he's still giving us an example in his retirement, preaching this morning in Germany right now, right? So, so whoever it is, there be other people in your life, but think through the leaders God has used in your life and consider the outcome of their life. Consider the impact it had on you and imitate them. And the reason that we can still follow the examples of those who've already gone before us and finished their race is because the one that they're following does not and cannot change. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We're following the same Savior and so we can 
look to their examples. Remember your leaders. The second obstacle is obey your leaders. Verse 17. And, and this one can be hard for us in different ways, right? This can be hard for us in different ways because it tests our humility and our trust. It tests, uh, you know, submitting to someone else. That's, that's like a dirty word today, right? We don't like to do that. It means I'm not in control. It means that, that I might actually have to give of something, right? And frankly, it's, it, it can be a little hard or, or fearful for some of us because authority is so easily and so often abused today that we're just nervous or anxious of even going there. We'd just rather get rid of the whole thing. But no serious athlete is going to ignore the instructions of their coach or their trainer, right? That would be foolish, especially when the trainer's whole job is to help you succeed. They're calling, and, and, and so it is with, with leaders in the church. The job, the calling of leaders in the church is not to lord authority over people, but to lay their lives down in service for your spiritual good. Now, do they always get it right? No. No, they don't. But that's the calling, and that's what is assumed here in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So recognize that the elders at Stonebridge... We're going to have to answer to God for how we've shepherded you, shepherded you. Like that's that's a big deal. That's a serious responsibility. And again, we are by no means perfect. You all know that, right? And we're not above correction or accountability. In fact, the, our authority is contingent on our faithfulness to the gospel. So if at any point we cease to be faithful, then you, in holding us accountable, need to get rid of us, right? That's how, because Jesus has the authority, and, and we're just simply trying to follow him. And we are trying to do a good job. That is our desire, and that is our goal, to be faithful in our shepherd care. We take it seriously. Uh, half, we, we meet twice a month, and the second meeting is devoted uh, at least a half portion of it to just praying for the flock. Like that's our calling, right? Um, and there is something you can do to help us do that well. The rest of verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, right? So worshiping Jesus, finishing well, involves obeying your leaders. And it involves praying for your leaders. That's the third obstacle in stage two, verses 18 and 19. And, and it's, it's remarkable here. The author's asking for prayer for himself, for the other apostles, especially because he wants to see them again. But what's remarkable is as he writes to this church, instructing and warning and encouraging them, he also needs them. It's not just like the author of Hebrews has it figured out, and then the church just needs to listen to him. And no, they need each other. He needs their prayers even as he seeks to shepherd and instruct them. And so the point here is simple. Your leaders need you just as much as you need them. They need your accountability, your encouragement, your engagement, and most of all, they need your prayers. 
if it's not part of your regular rhythm to pray for your pastors, elders, your life group leader, whoever it is, I'd encourage you to make that a priority because we can't do this without the Lord's help. You don't want us to do this without the Lord's help, right? We need prayers. And so that's stage two, following leaders. You get done with that, kind of shake it off. You get ready for stage three, right? Uh, Verses 9 to 16, fruitful lips and loving fellowship. There's a new theme, a whole new set of obstacles, all these different situations in life. And, and this, uh, this course here is going to test our dependence on Christ and the consistency of our faith. It's going to test our dependence on Christ and the consistency of our faith. And so the first obstacle on this third round here is strange teaching. Strange teaching. An athlete has to watch not just how they train, but what they eat, right? What you eat, your diet affects your endurance. And so here, the first test, verse 19, is a test of a proper diet. Verse 9, excuse, 9, not 19, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, what does he mean here by diverse and strange teachings? Like, is he introducing a new problem? Is he talking about the, the whole variety of false doctrines that might pop up in the ancient world or today? Uh, there's certainly no shortage of those, but I think it's unlikely that he's introducing a new threat as he winds the letter down. Far more likely, given the context of the book, is that he is simply describing the old covenant, the old covenant as a strange and diverse teaching, which, relative to the gospel that has fulfilled it, it now is. Like it was strange and weird to go back to living under Judaism and all of the sacrifices of the first covenant when Jesus has already fulfilled it. Imagine how weird. It would be to haul a goat into the front of the church and slaughter it or something like that. Like, that gets some looks, rightly so. Right? The old covenant's done, and so to keep trying to approach God based on it is this strange and diverse teaching. It's the wrong kind of diet. Depending on ritual sacrifice for our relationship with God is foreign to the gospel of grace. It's the wrong kind of diet. And he unpacks that in verses 9 to 12. You know, if if you remember back to Leviticus, under the Old Covenant, it was not uncommon for the priests to eat a portion of the sacrifice. That was one of the ways God provided for them. That's how they got their food. Under the New Covenant, it's not food that strengthens us, strengthens our hearts. It's the grace that we have in Jesus. And, And the author illustrates that by, uh, by pointing out that the cross is an altar from which no priest gets to eat. Something's different here. Rather, like some of the other old covenant offerings that were the animals taken outside the camp and burned up and consumed wholly, so Christ was sacrificed outside the city. It's his way of saying that the new covenant worship is not about ritual sacrifices like ancient Judaism was, and and frankly, like some branches of Christianity today 
even focus on. It's about a whole life lived according to God's will to the glory of Christ. That's what's at stake. And so, and, and, and if that's the case, if that's what we're committed to, the grace of Jesus, instead of kind of a ritualized worship where I go through the right motions and, and I think God blesses me, that's actually going to put us at odds with the world around us who still approaches God that way. And that's the second obstacle here, public ridicule. You know, for the, the congregation that's being written to in this letter, by setting aside those ritual sacrifices and holding fast to Christ instead, that made them the object of scorn for those who were still holding on to Judaism. And, and so, whereas the Old Covenant is a strange doctrine relative to the gospel, those who hold on to the gospel become strangers in a world that's committed to a performance or ritualistic version of religion. The kind of worship that's all about, I'm going to go through the right motions and, and, and make sure the clergy are doing the right thing, but it's otherwise divorced from what's going on in my heart or how I'm actually living my life. Um, that was true for the Hebrew Christians. It's true for many of us who come out of traditions that, again, are, are more focused on that ritualized version of worship. I'm, I'm good with God because I've done the steps, right? The, the rituals, the relics, the mass. And, and frankly, and if you grew up in that and then found Christ and have walked away from it, there's a, there's a ridicule that follows you for abandoning that tradition, right? There's a public scorn. There's a cost involved in following Christ, but the author here says, embrace that. Embrace the ridicule. Embrace the cost. Embrace the strange, even though the rejection hurts. But what a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek a city that is to come. Public ridicule is hard, but the prize waiting for us, the city to come that we look for, is so worth it because it's full of Jesus. It's all about Him. The third and fourth obstacles bleed into each other in verses 15 and 16, and they show us the, the kind of sacrifices that God actually does Except, like not these animal sacrifices, but fruitful lips and loving fellowship. And, and what both of these do is they get our eyes off of ourselves. Like fruitful lips, the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. What happens when we sing praise to God? You know, when we, when we do that at the beginning of our service or when you're doing that on your own, what happens when we sing praise to God is it lifts our eyes off of ourselves and up to heaven. We're focused on Him instead of us, declaring, describing who He is, what He has done. So praise points us upward with fruitful lips, and, and loving fellowship points us outward in doing good and sharing with others. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's amazing, you know, you watch the marathon or you watch the, the ninja show or whatever it is. Some of the most passionate athletes are those who are competing for someone else, right? They're a loved one that they lost or a cause that they believe in. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Lord and onto others. Fruitful lips, faithful uh, or loving fellowship, sharing what we have with others. And the Lord takes those sacrifices and sanctifies them by His blood to make them acceptable to God. And, and all of this, all of these different three opposites, they all come together in the final one, the final stage, verses 20 to 21, a faithful life. So you're, you're, you're preparing for all of these unforeseen obstacles, trying to be faithful to Jesus in each one of them. The whole thing can be summed up in this final instruction, which is really an implication and prayer more than anything, but, but there's something we're called to do here, and that is to do God's will. If there's one way to sum up all of the commands in the book of Hebrews, this is it. We're called to do God's will, to do what God purposes, what God desires, what is pleasing in His sight. New covenant worship is not defined primarily by ritual, but by a whole life focused on God's will to the glory of Christ. And that's, that's what we see in the benediction. And we see not only that we're called to do God's will, but it also tells us a little bit about the source of our worship, the means, and the goal. Like what, if our acceptable worship is summarized by doing God's will, where does it come from? How do we get there? And why? Well, the source is very simple. It's God Himself. We see that in the benediction. Right? God is the one who equips us, the God of peace who equips us with everything good to do His will. He's the source. And He supplies this through Christ. Christ is the means. The great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the eternal covenant, He's the means of our worship. I mean, we've seen that throughout the book, right? From beginning to end, the supremacy of Jesus. He's better than everything, right? He's the means, and His glory is the goal. That's how it ends. Through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus is the reward. You know, when we stand, you know, if, you're, if you're competing, that 75-foot rope, you get to the top, they call that Mount Midoriyama or some, you know, television name for it, Right? But, but when we finish our race and we're standing on top of that mountain, it's not our name that's going to be praised, right? It's the Lord's name. It's Jesus' name. It's, he, he's the source of our strength. He's the means of our worship. He is the goal, His praise and glory. Jesus is better. Jesus is better, friends. He's the one that this is all about. He is worth our faithful endurance. He is worth our acceptable worship in all of the different shapes that that takes. And so the prayer is that God would indeed equip us with everything good to do His will for the sake of Christ. Whatever the obstacle, 
that we might finish well, that we may honor him, that we might give him the worship he deserves and treasure him above all things. That is, that is the fruit of the book of Hebrews in the life of the church. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we do pray that you would indeed meet us with your strength. Lord, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may you equip us with everything good that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in, our, in your sight, Lord, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.